Welcome to the Whiskey Rebellion. This is David Silkenet in Edinburgh, joined as always by Frank Cogliano. How are you doing, Frank? David, I am great. A new term is a morning. Everything's great. The days are getting a little bit longer. It's still cold, but, you know, things are looking up. Things things are looking up. I'm excited about the semester starting uh, uh, just a little bit over a week from now. Right. Uh, today we're going to look at a recent NPR poll that suggests that 6 in 10 Americans believe that U.S. democracy is in crisis and at risk of failing. Uh, and this is a polling that seems to hold true both for Democrats and Republicans. Uh, so they don't seem to agree on much of anything, but they seem to agree that uh, American democracy is at risk. So we want to sort of, in, uh, sort of see if we can make some sense of that finding of that poll and other similar polls and uh, put into some historical context and what have you. And we're recording this, of course, on uh, January the 7th, so one day after the the anniversary of January, the January 6th insurrection. So we'll probably be talking about that as well as too. Yes, I think we'll reflect on that a little bit, although we have discussed that in previous podcasts. So I think the, the findings of the poll are interesting, and it should be said this was one of a, of a number of polls that I've seen in the last week that basically show very similar findings, that there's a widespread concern about the uh, health of American democracy at the moment and indeed the future of the United States. And I was, I was struck by a couple of things in, in looking at this polling data, David. Um, one is something you alluded to, which is that both Democrats and Republicans seem to agree on this. Now, they disagree on the reason for the crisis that mm. they perceive, but there is a sort of bipartisan agreement that, that, that the nation seems to be in, facing a, a political crisis of some kind, and I think that's interesting. The other thing that struck me, uh, and, and I think you're in the same boat, David, is uh, how I'm growing out of touch with the United States. And I, this is probably not a good thing for a professor of American history to con confess, but uh, you know, I haven't been there. I used to go quite regularly sure. pre-COVID, and I haven't been since January of 20, uh, 2020, uh, just before the pandemic. And I'm struck, I'm struck as I see this at the degree to which um, I don't necessarily know what's going on. I mean, I follow it very closely, both as a matter of personal interest and, and professional interest. And I've got family and people I love in the United States, of course. But I do so remotely. I do so via the media and social media. And I don't know the degree to which that is warping my understanding of it. I don't know how you feel about that. Um, I think it's it's been hard to connect with the United States in the past few years, uh, partially because I haven't been there. But I think even, even if you were there, I think where you go and who you talk to is going right. to make a huge difference. I mean, it's a huge country with 300 million people. 330 uh, million. Three, 330 million <laughs> and counting, uh, depending you know, um, you know, one of the, the, the things that, that's striking is, 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 is you know, given the, 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 the sorting that's happened in American society, uh, you know, and especially in the past, you know, uh, reflecting on the past uh, four or five years, you know, if you are a, a Trump supporter, you know, you probably don't talk too much to people who are Biden supporters and vice versa. And so, you know, I think that uh, polarization, I think, is going to make it hard for Americans to even understand Amer other Americans who are. And I think that sort of speaks to the, the, uh, some of the results in this. So this poll. so are we out of touch or are all Americans out of touch with each other? And we're just we're just slightly further away. I think I think probably actually in some ways the latter. I mean, I think it's very hard to figure out who is in touch with everybody and who actually can speak to to Americans and, and be believed by them. I think part of this is about trust in institutions, and there are very few institutions I think that all Americans trust anymore. Um, I think it's the erosion of institutions that's one of the root. Problem, you know, the, the, the root causes in this the crisis in democracy. So, you know, you, Frank, you mentioned that, that you think that, that Democrats or Republicans or liberals or however you want to phrase the sort of uh, political divide, you know, they, they agree that there's a crisis in democracy, but maybe disagree about what that crisis is. We don't want to break that down for us a bit. Well, yeah, with the caveat that I don't know what's going on in America. So if you're still listening to this podcast, you know, more fool you. Um, <laughs> I, I think that what we see, what the data seems to show, and and, uh, and anecdotal evidence as well, uh, as well as person on the street interviews, is that 
Republicans, and I'm generalizing now for, for the purposes of this conversation, the Republicans tend to be skeptical and believe the nation's in crisis or facing a political crisis because they don't accept that Joe Biden was uh, legitimately elected. And there's great, they, they express a great deal of concern about election security and the legitimacy of American elections. On the other side of the aisle, Democrats seem to be very concerned about the events um, that we saw last year on January 6th, and that's a sort of become a sort of shorthand for what they see as Republican efforts to uh, limit the franchise and or take the franchise away from people, particularly people of color and people who tend to vote Democratic. And so they, they're coming at this, uh, each see at least as I see it, uh, a crisis in American democracy, but the, that crisis originates from different places. Um, those on the right see the crisis as originating in, in that the voting isn't secure and that something has to be done to do that, uh, mm. to make the make voting secure. Those on the left see the danger, uh, see a danger in those Republican efforts to allegedly secure the vote they see it as to take the vote away. I think that's a I think that's a pretty fair set. I mean, the and, and I think the other thing is is about the role of political violence, right? And I will have to get to that. Sure. Um, you know, just to, to add some other numbers to this, um, something between seventy and eighty percent of Republicans do not believe that Joe Biden was legitimately elected. So they buy some version of the the quote unquote big lie. Seventy four percent of polled Republicans believed. Uh, that uh, the election was rigged and stolen in some ways. Uh, 61% of Republicans believe that Biden received illegal votes, so there were ballot stuffing. 46% say that Trump votes were destroyed. 41% say that voting machines were rigged. And only one in five Republicans, according to uh, UMass Amherst poll, believe that Biden was legitimately elected. And that's Pretty striking that 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 uh, the minority part, or what is one of the two major political parties, does not see the elected president as legitimate at all. Um, and thinking about sort of the events of of, of last uh, a year ago, most Americans believe that the attack was threatening to democracy, but that includes. Basically, all Democrats, 96% of Democrats, saw that the attacks were threatening democracies. But Republicans were split. Half Republicans say that the events of January 6th were threatening democracy. The other half say the events of January 6th were people who were protecting democracy. Which I think speaks to maybe very different definitions of what democracy is and what democracy looks like. You know, and I think Americans... When they say, when we're asked, is democracy in crisis, I think they have very different understandings about, you know, is democracy simply the ability to cast a ballot? Uh, is, the, is it a trust in institutions? Is it functioning of government? Is it about uh, the will of the majority being uh, manifested? Uh, I think maybe the question in some ways um, obfuscates as much as it clarifies. But it does, I think, clarify that there's a lot of people who think there's a problem, which I think is uh, at the root of what we're discussing today. It is at the root of what we're discussing today, but can we talk about the four in ten who don't think there's a problem? Yes, let's talk about that. <laughs> you know, David, I'm always more optimistic than you. So, 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 what, what, <laughs> what, sure are, true, okay. what do we make of them? I mean, and, and, look, I can see that 60% of Americans thinking that the country is facing a crisis is a significant finding. But what... What do you think is, do, are they the kind of, you know, there are always those people in polls who have no opinion, even though, you, you know, you think, you know, so do you like ice cream? I have no opinion on that. I mean, there's always that small fraction. There sure. are those folks. Is that what they are? Or what's going on with that four in ten? That's a good question. Um, one of the things I think we've learned is that polling has become progressively harder uh, in recent years. You know, when they Gallup started doing polls, you know, 70 years ago, and they tried to do the poll, everyone answered the poll. And I think increasingly people, when they get called by pollsters don't answer the polls so part of that distrust of institutions. institutions right you used to trust the pollsters now it all depends on which pollsters you trust if any um but let's assume that that, that the polls are accurate which may be a, a faulty assumption you know those four and ten i think are, are are demonstrating faith in the institutions the fact that the government is still standing that we still have um 
you know, Congress meeting, if not necessarily actually legislating, that we have, you know, uh, the, the structures are still in place, that um, elections happened uh, some pl- in some places in November, the elections are going to happen, people expect, in this coming November. Um, and that, that the sort of basic structure of things is intact. I mean, part of it depends on what you think a crisis is. Um, you know, is a house with faulty wiring in crisis or is it only a crisis when the, the wiring sets the house on fire? Uh, so I think that's part of the issue. Um, but I guess it depends on how resilient you think American institutions are. Yeah, one of the takes, and we want to do, uh, we do want to briefly discuss yesterday's events mm. marking the anniversary of uh, the January 6th insurrection. But one of the takes that I saw yesterday wasn't that prevalent, but it, it was not uncommon, where, where some people said, actually, January 6th, that is the, the and its aftermath last year, uh, reflects that our institutions are robust. You know, they held uh, the, 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 you know, despite this this uh, grave threat to uh, this apparent threat to the outcome of the election and to democratic institutions and to the capital itself, the system worked. So some people did take that view. You're 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 giving me a quizzical look about that. But, yes, but, but I, I and I I suspect those folks are in the four and ten mm-hmm. who don't believe that there's a crisis. Well, and I also think you know the degree to which. People are engaged with the day-to-day of politics varies tremendously. I, mean, I think both of us, and I imagine most of you listening to this, are kind of political junkies who follow the, uh, you know, uh, follow every pitch and follow every sort of machination in Washington and outside of Washington. I think there's lots of Americans who are uh, have a very different relationship with politics, who 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 participate in the electoral process by voting every two or four years, but aren't as, um, you know, watching the grass grow as much as we are. Uh, and they, I think from their perspective, they say, look, we have more or less the same system going on now that we do the rest of the time. Um, and, and good for them that they've got busy lives that are full of other things. Uh, and they're not obsessing about what's going on in politics as much as we are. But uh, I think that's also a perspective that may be captured by, by that 4 in 10. We've discussed January 6th before, and we talked about it a little bit last week, so I don't think we need to belabor it hmm. too much. But what did you think about yesterday's, I guess commemoration is the right word? Yeah. I, I thought Biden's speech was, uh, and I only watched part of the part of the event yesterday, but, but, but I think the parts that were striking for the part I watched was, was Biden's speech, which was, for him, you know, a very angry speech. You know, he has been one of the things he's been trying to do over the past year is, is to try to be bipartisan. He's that's been one of the hallmarks of his political career is his faith in bipartisanship. And yesterday he attacked President Trump, although he didn't refer to him by name. He's, he always sort of allied it, referring to him as the former president or the ex president or something. Uh, but the language and the tone of the speech was decisively angry. He talked about Trump and Trump supporters holding a dagger at the throat of America at American democracy, you know, and I think he is speaking to that sort of threat to to the democratic institutions that, that six and ten Americans think that we're facing right now. Yeah, he wasn't the kind of sort of um, cuddly grandpa that, that he normally projects. He was definitely angry grandpa uh, yeah, yesterday. More of a uh, John Brown kind yeah. of disposition. Than... But, but I'm interested in... Is, is, because one of the themes of Biden's presidency over the past year has been to try and restore norms. Mm. And many of the norms that were shattered um, by, by, the Trump, by Trump and Trump's administration. And he's, Biden has kind of self-consciously tried to recreate those norms, which are very important to a guy who spent 50 years in Washington, uh, or the, most of 50 years in Washington. Uh, but yesterday was not that, in the sense that, you know, one, one of those kind of quite cherished norms is that presidents don't attack their predecessors. If anything, they rely on them for their counsel occasionally and so on. Uh, And the first president in modern times to really attack one of his predecessors, in fact, was Donald Trump. Yes. Uh, And and Biden seemed to be engaging in similar behavior. Is that that a fair characterization? Well, it's also true that that former presidents usually don't criticize the sitting president. So I think Trump is not... (laughs) playing by 
and has never played by the rules of because he never knew what the rules were. Um, so I, you know, one of the questions is, you know, who is Biden speaking to? Who is he trying to persuade in that speech? You know, and there were very few Republicans in the audience yesterday. The the except for maybe you know two or three, you know, Liz Cheney and her father, um, maybe one or two others, but everyone else in the room was a Democrat. Um, you know, one of the things that that Biden has been trying to do, and has, um, in some ways, failed to do, is persuade Republicans that he's a legitimate president and that they should listen to things he has to say. And I think many Republicans, because they don't see him as legitimate, don't listen to him. You know, and I think one, you know, thinking about his calls for people to get vaccinated, I think, in some ways, in for some people, his calls to get vaccinated are what's causing them not to get vaccinated because they don't trust him uh, and they don't think he is legitimate. Um, and I think here he's speaking to his base in a way that he hasn't for most of his presidency. So to what end then? I, I don't, that's the question. I mean, I think he, he's in part speaking to survivors of a traumatic incident. I mean, I think the people in the room yesterday were people whose lives were jeopardized a year ago. And um, I think he recognizes that, and I think he shares in their anger. Um, Congress has become a very toxic place in the last... I mean, it was a toxic place uh, and has been a toxic place for, for a while now. But I think in the past year in particular, Congress has become um, a, a dysfunctional and maybe not dangerous, but potentially dangerous, uh, place for people to be. And I think Democratic and Republican legislators don't see themselves as legitimate and they, they don't see, they see each other as, as, as threats. And I think there, there's, there are people who are worried about their fellow congressmen, you know, causing them harm or their followers causing them harm. And I think that's a very strange place to be. So I think he's talking to survivors more than anything else. Which speaks to that sense of crisis revealed in the NPR poll. To be sure, yes. Uh, okay, David, I've, I've got a question for you. Uh, in thinking about this poll, I was, uh, I've been struck by a lot of the rhetoric around that I've heard from voters, um, again, on both sides, that NPR had a story about this, or a podcast, rather, the NPR Politics podcast. They interviewed a couple of voters. Um, about this very question about a crisis, and they interviewed a Trump supporter and a Biden supporter, and they had very different views of the world. And I've been thinking, again, from my own period of, of specialization, oh, this is a lot like the 1790s, when there was very intense political rhetoric, and, and each side, you know, political parties were in their infancy, but there was a failure to recognize that opposition was legitimate in that decade. Mm -hmm. And the, the, the political rhetoric in the 1790s is among the most extreme at any point in American history. But I also thought the decade that's often brought up um, in, in the context of, of the current situation is the 1850s, right mm -hmm. before the Civil War. And so, David, are we in the 1790s, the 1850s? And just by way of slightly more background on this, it turns out, and historians have said, okay, the, the, the rhetoric of the 1790s is quite extreme, but actually it was an overreaction. Things weren't that bad. It was, if you will, the growing pains of a new, or the emergence of a new system and people trying to reconcile themselves to that. Whereas the 1850s, we know, was the prelude to the greatest war in America, the largest conflict and the greatest loss of life until COVID mm. <laughs> in, from a single event in American history. So where are, is this the 1790s or the 1850s? I think it's the 1870s. That is to say the period okay. immediately after the Civil War. All right. Um, <laughs> Explain, please. Okay, well, so here, here's my, my, my frame for this. I mean, one of the things you have in the early 1870s is widespread clan violence, white supremacist violence in the South, targeting uh, African-Americans, targeting uh, whites who were trying to create a biracial society, um, Freedmen's Bureau agents, teachers, politicians, and what have you. You know, and what you had in Congress is you had some people who say, look, we need to do something about this violence in the South. We need to confront it. It is a real problem. It is a threat to American democracy. 
And you had some people in Congress, including some people who were former Confederates, who were people that participated in white supremacist violence, said, actually, there is no violence. The violence that you're reporting doesn't actually exist. These organizations, these things like the Klan, they don't, they don't exist. And uh, actually, if we try to stop this problem, we're actually causing more problems than we are solving. You know, and and there there were incidences of, um, I was think, looking actually yesterday at the example of a of a school teacher, a woman by the name of Julia Hayden, uh, who was murdered in Tennessee by the Klan, and it was clear to everyone involved that the, the Klan had gone and killed her because she she was an African American woman had opened a, a school for for black children. The Republican, or sorry, the Democratic governor, who himself was a former Confederate, said, "Actually, there's no evidence this Klan did this. It may have just been an accident, and if the Feds get involved, that would make things worse here. Please don't." You know, and I think this sort of idea that there are sort of two very different visions, versions of the truth out there, where some people say, "Actually, you know, the, the you know, it's daytime." Other people say, "Actually, no, it's nighttime." I think that seems very familiar to me in this discussion right now, you know, the, the um, was Biden legitimately elected or not, you know, what happened on January 6th, were those people attacking democracy or were they protecting democracy? And, you know, all these people in Congress, one of the things that I think is striking a year on is that even after the insurrection, on January 6th and January the 7th last year when they actually then certified certified the vote, there were still hundreds of Republicans who voted against certification, who voted to, to reject Biden's election and see him as illegitimate, which, you know, and those people are still walking the halls of Congress. There's supposition, and I think the investigation of the January 6th commission will, will bring more of this to light in the weeks and months to come. Some of them were involved in, in various aspects of the insurrection itself, either in meeting with people involved in it beforehand, supporting them during and afterwards. Um, and so I think, you know, the presence of those people in Congress is in some ways very much like the presence of former Confederates in Congress in, during Reconstruction who were actively trying to sort of undermine uh, creating a, a biracial republic in the South afterwards. So that's why it seems like the 1870s to me. Okay, but how does, so, so the one, when I posited the 1790s versus the 1850s, mm. each of those has a different ending. Yes, to be one, sure. One more peaceful than the other, which is, uh, if it's if we're indeed if the eighteen seventies is the best analog, how does this end? Oh uh, well, it it ends. Uh, that's a good question. I mean, I, it, it ends badly, most likely, because you know the, the the fight against white supremacist violence. You know, in, in the South, there was federal intervention on, under President Grant, but you know, in the long term. The white supremacists won out and were able to disenfranchise African Americans and terrorize uh, whites who were sympathetic to to African Americans and create Jim Crow and create the the, the violence embedded within lynching and, and other kinds of um, segregationist practices from the eighteen nineties onwards, um, you know, and so that that's a bad outcome. I mean, one of the things thinking about the 1790s, and I'm curious to hear you talk more about this, I mean, the, there is that really violent rhetoric in the 1790s. Is that just in Congress, or does that actually filter out into the real world? It filters out in the real world, at least as, no, it's, this is difficult to measure. Um, and, and what's interesting to me about the 1790s and why I think, do think there's a lesson here is the media plays a role. So newspapers are incredibly partisan in the 1790s. They, there's, there's no 
pretense to objectivity in newspapers. There's no belief that, okay, the news part of the newspaper is, is objective, and I'm using air quotes yeah. here, and the editorial page is different. Oh, well, the same is true in the 19th century, right. and the same is so true. It, so. But we, we start to see really uh, a partisan popular press, or the beginnings of a partisan press. All of this is in its infancy. It's all mm. embryonic at this point in the 1790s. And because there's a failure to recognize that opposition to the government is legitimate, you know, it becomes a zero-sum game. It's, it's, you know, our version of the republic is the only version of the republic, and the people who are opposed to us are evil. I yeah. mean, or, out, you know, they're either... The rhetoric is very similar because the French Revolution is the thing... Uh, as a shorthand, at least that that they're that they're disagreeing about. So you're either a radical Jacobin, or you're a quasi monarchist. Or, or <laughs> those are your two choices. Those are your two choices. At mm. least those are the two caricatures. And there's a belief that if the Democratic Republicans, the sometimes called Jeffersonians, come to power, they're going to erect guillotines and chop people's heads off and things like this. And there's equally a belief on the other side that you know that. Hamilton and the and George Washington and John Adams and the High Federalists are seeking to return the United States. They're going to overthrow the Republic and, and return it to monarchy. Um, and, and this is the kind of rhetoric, and it's fairly widespread. And there are local variants. There's a belief that, um, you know, the Democratic Republicans are going to take your Bibles away because they're all atheists and all, all this kind of stuff. So the rhetorical violence mm. is reminiscent of today, and I think it's reminiscent of other points of intense polarization in American history. There's some actual violence. There's a famous fight in Congress. Nothing like we see in the 1840s and 50s, as Joanne Freeman has sure. shown in her recent work. Um, so so the, the, the actual violence is much less um, intense. But even, you know, one looks at the election of 1800, the, the contested election of 1800 that ended that decade, of course, um, and wasn't resolved by the House of Representatives until February of 1801. In the period between the election and, and the inauguration of Jefferson uh, in, in March of 1801, there was talk of different states calling out their militias and using force. Didn't happen. Hmm. But there was, there was a, in that winter of 1800-1801, there's a real sense of political crisis that has some resonances with today. So I, I do yeah. think... It wasn't just in Congress. It did extend beyond Congress. Um, and there are fears of the French Revolution, fears of the Haitian Revolution, all underlying these anxieties. So I, I, think, they're, I think it's opposite to a point. You know, history never, never actually repeats itself, of course. Oh, to be sure, it echoes yeah. rather than repeats. But I, I think, that, I, I think it, there are some resonances, I think. And the fact that it was, you know, the system held in, you know, the very new system uh, held in 1800 and 1801 and there was a measure of tranquility afterwards might give us cause for hope. It's a slightly better ending than the 1870s. Yeah, most of the things in the 19th century don't end up, well, it depends on who you are, uh, but most don't end up particularly Yeah, well. your century's a mess, David. That's what makes it, that makes it worth studying. <laughs> if people were nice to each other all the time, that'd be boring, That's right? Like, so, so, David, I, I have a question. Utopian societies don't create many historians. Uh, I've, got, I've got a question for you, because then I want to pose a big question. I've got a small question, then a big one. Oh, geez, okay. So my small question is, what we're seeing from the polling is, at least on, uh, on, on the part of many Republicans, not all, but many Republicans, there's a, there's a belief that Joe Biden is illegitimate. His, his election was is illegitimate. This is the um, kind of article of faith among Trump supporters, but even more widely in the Republican Party at the moment. The, the polling mm. would suggest that. And I'll confess, I got this completely wrong. I mean, we were talking about this last week. You know, a lot of the the, the birth of the big lie in from November 2020 through to January 21 was absurd and farcical. It was, you know, Rudy Giuliani at the Four Seasons landscaping. It was the My Pillow guy. Yeah. I mean, a lot of these characters were clownish who were perpetuating this view that the election was stolen. From our perspective. From our perspective. Well, they, Rudy Giuliani is cl was clownish in the, in the autumn of 2020. Well, and sinister. Yeah. Anyway, so let's not belabor this. My point being... It seemed not quite a joke, but it didn't seem credible, and it seemed so so 
frankly, risible because the, 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 it was a clean election and the results mm. were actually quite clear. <laughs> and so what, what has surprised me is the fact that this belief has taken root and it's become, as I say, an article of faith that Joe Biden is illegitimate. And that makes it very difficult for him to govern, as we, we've discussed. But are we being unfair? Because uh, there, are, there is precedent for this that strikes me, which is after, in the aftermath of the 2000 election, many Democrats, perhaps even your good self, <laughs> yes. claim that George W. Bush's election was illegitimate because there were, there were irregularities in that election, certainly in Florida, and the election was decided by the Supreme Court on the basis, on a pretty, on part, mm. along partisan lines. Yeah. Uh, and, and many Democrats in, during the, uh, the Bush years claimed that Bush was an illegitimate president. How is this different from that? Um, I think it's different in, in a couple of important respects. Um, the first, I think, is that Al Gore throughout that process, especially at the end, said, look, we don't agree with the outcome. We think we legitimately won this election. However, that's not the way things have turned out, and we are going to recognize George W. Bush as the president. You know, And Al Gore went to Bush's inauguration, and then Al Gore disappeared and grew a beard and did a documentary. Um, you know, he never, he didn't persist in saying, actually, I should be president um, that this election was illegitimate. Democrats in Congress worked with President Bush on a number of things, the No Child Left Behind stuff, various things with the war on terror. They didn't recoil and say he was illegitimate. So I think the beha political behavior of, of Democrats, even if they were in 2000 and, and early 2001, um, skeptical about the, the terms upon which George W. Bush was elected, they're not, they haven't been behaving the same way that Republicans have been behaving in this past year. I mean, I think that's striking about the, the big lie is that there's, you know, how, even if the facts don't seem to, to change people's minds about it, people who believe in the big lie a year ago continue to believe in it now. Um, and that seems not to have shifted at all. I think that the, the polling on that has remained consistent. Um, and that's concerning, if not horrifying, and started figuring out. But I think that is fundamentally different than um, what happened in 2000 and 2001, where I think a year after the 2000 election, that wasn't a point of conversation anymore. Partially because of 9-11, but, but partially because, you know, um, Democrats decided that, that even if they didn't like the call by the ref at the end, they were, were not going to, you know, throw a temper tantrum about it. Well, and they accepted the authority of the ref to make the call. Yes. They didn't say, let's shoot the ref. <laughs> no, they did not say, let's shoot the ref. Uh, they emphatically did not. So I think that makes a difference, right? And I think if you look at sort of other places where we've had contested elections, um, you know, whether that's in, you know, 1800 or, you know, 1876 you know, or, or uh, what have you, the side that lost ultimately ended up sort of falling on their sword and saying, actually, the system is, is worth fighting for, um, even if I didn't win this particular round. Um, and I think Trump supporters and Trump himself have, have not done that in the past year, and that's quite a departure from, from tradition. Yeah, I mean, that's another norm that he's shattered, and it might be the most significant one in the end. Sorry, I had my big question for you, but now I have a follow-up that's no, okay. from what you just said. Uh, so, so if you'll indulge me. Oh, please. I uh, this whole <laughs> I mean, podcast is you indulging me. Um, Donald Trump's not a young man, despite what his uh, doctor claimed at one point. I don't think he's a particularly healthy man. Um, Donald Trump is not going to live forever. Uh, let's suppose he dies today or tomorrow. Hmm. Does this con does this belief in the big lie continue? Does it? I mean, to what extent is this is this related to Trump and his particular supporters, who are who are a minority of the population and are not even the entire Republican Party necessarily? Hmm. Um, but does this die with him, or is it a, is it a 
bigger problem than that? I think it's taken on a life of its own. Um, and I think that I mean, one of the things that struck me a couple of weeks ago, Trump was being interviewed by Candace Owens, I believe, uh, and was asked about the vaccine, and he encouraged people to get vaccinated, and Trump supporters booed him on that, you know, which suggests that Trumpism has taken a life of its own above and beyond the particulars of what Donald Trump says or does. Um, and clearly the, the people who've gotten elected to Congress who are Trumpists uh, and people who are, you know, in state and local offices who are Trumpists are going to be there even after he's not. Um, but they I, won't have his yeah. particular gifts, and I'm not saying this sarcastically, his mm. gift for communication, at least with his particular supporters, his prominence, his high profile, his oh, yeah. 10 years on reality TV that prepared the way for him. I mean, I mean, in, in many respects, Trump was a, the result of a perfect storm or a stew oh. of, of particular circumstances that allowed him to exploit that feeling. Yeah. And it's hard to see somebody else coming along who has that particular set of characteristics. I think instead of, of one person necessarily, we may end up with a dozen or more, uh, a thousand Trumpists, uh, you know, who are, who are articulating a vision of, of Trumpism, whatever that happens to be. And it's as a political philosophy, it's somewhat incoherent. Um, but, uh, I think we're going to end up, maybe not with an heir apparent, but but a number of people who are claiming Trump's mantle and are going to try to claim, you know, his his supporters and the the loyalty that um, you know he has engendered among his supporters. I think might continue the movement even after he's um, no longer a part of it. What do you think? I don't know. I mean, and uh, it's interesting you cite the, the you know, that when he endorsed vaccines, the backlash against him, which I think probably shocked him. Mm. Um, he's not used to being booed. He's not. Well, he's certainly not used to being booed by his supporters and he only ever speaks to his supporters. So that was pretty striking to me. And that does suggest that I think Trumpism will outlast Donald Trump. Although, as we see with a lot of these. Uh, populist movements around the world, particularly when they're when they're uh, oriented around particular individuals, they often don't outlast the individuals by much. But the impulses that gave birth to them and the problems mm -hmm. that gave it, it basically comes down to whether he is a symptom or the disease. And if he's a symptom, then these underlying issues uh, that are revealed mm. in the polls we're discussing today are still there and, and, and it will, it will manifest itself in another way. We'll get a variant to use the oh, term parlance. Oh, no. But so, but I want to ask a question. This is my big question. Big, for big question. This oh, is geez. the big okay. question. Uh, and I've been thinking a lot about this lately. So, so we've heard a lot of apocalyptic scenarios. Uh, one is we're on the verge of another civil war. The other is we're, we, the United States are, are about to, uh, basically cease being a democracy and will we'll morph into sort of some some form of authoritarian state. Mm. And both of these are, you see them expressed quite a lot. Yes. Um, or variations on it. And I've been thinking, okay, well, nothing lasts forever. You know, the United States won't last forever. Maybe maybe this is the end of the United States as, as, as a liberal republic. And that's a possibility. I don't think it's a probability, but I think it's a possibility. But that's led me to think, okay, let's try to do a thought experiment and be more positive about this. Okay. We've talked a lot over the course of this podcast over the past now, we're on our fifth year, um, about the problems with the U.S. Constitution. And you know, whether it's the Senate or the Electoral College, what have you. There are, there, but there are problems with the United States Constitution um, and one of which is because it's so old, it's venerated. Mm. Everybody claims to be defending the Constitution. Uh, it makes it very difficult to change. Yes. But let's think positively. Let's think. Let's think creatively. I Thinking want to, creatively. I want okay. to propose a thought experiment to you. In the 18th century, when the Constitution was adopted, it was a widespread belief that republics had to be relatively small, and that large republics would fail. 
James Madison tried to counter this in, in drafting the Constitution and, and in the Federalist Papers. He said, no, 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 this, this Constitution, Federalist Number 10, he argues, is going to bring together, this large country will bring together such a multiplicity of interests, they'll kind of cancel each other out and there'll be a cacophony of noise and, and so on. So nobody will oppress anybody else. <laughs> well, um, maybe we need to think of a new constitutional settlement. So, so know, James Madison was wrong. James Madison might have been wrong. wrong. Okay. Uh, is it possible to conceive of a new way to organize the United States? I'm not talking about necessarily the end of the United States, but maybe the Articles of Confederation were right. You know, having a loose confederation or even a confederation of regional confederations, because it might be a better and more healthy way to go forward. Mm. And I'm thinking of democracy with a small d here. If the people who live in a particular area or state or agglomeration of states share certain values and beliefs that are at odds with people in another part of the country who have very different values and views but are roughly congregated together what's wrong with having a looser confederation uh, not uh, i don't think the united states can break up i think there'd be massive consequences for global security in that regard so i'm not advocating that but i'm advocating for us to think creatively about a looser confederation is that possible um, so you're thinking about like a friendly divorce was a creative uncoupling or whatever it is that, uh, yeah, I'm talking about a couple that divorces, but we're still friends, friends right? <laughs> share the, and share the, the parenting and, and, and we're going to, yeah, we're going to still co-parent our nuclear know, missiles know. together. Oh, and, 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 uh, but, but, <laughs> but seriously, if it turns out, and again, I'm not, I'm not placing a value judgment on people's beliefs in this, mm. but if it turns out that people in Texas, a majority of people, not everyone, and this is an important dimension to it, see the world in a very different way than people in California or New York. But they do sh still share common values, let's say a belief in democracy. Mm -hmm. Why can't they have their democratic power locally in a more decentralized system? And that would take some of the air out of, the, take some of the, lower the pressure in this moment of crisis where people on both sides believe there's a crisis, believe the country's in danger. Hmm. And I'm, I'm asking us and you to think creatively for solutions. If we have politics as a zero-sum game, this is what we get to, where, where there are winners and losers, and I either win, and if I win, you lose. Hmm. And if that's the outcome you believe you've been cheated, that's not healthy. That's not working. That's true. So why can't we think... So. As I say, what's wrong with the Articles of Confederation? I, I reckon, and I, I don't want to talk about the like the uh, the practical difficulties of adopting a new constitution because mm. I think that that you could kick this into touch with that argument. But that's not what I want to do. I want us to think. I want us to think. Okay, let's let's come up with a let's try to think creatively rather than just say we're headed towards either authoritarianism or civil war. Hmm. So I'm the optimistic version of this i guess is you know that's what i'm all about dude. you're all you're all about the, <laughs> the pollyannish version um the you know can you envision a situation in which um half of the country or or, or however you know splits off into or or you can envision a version in which it, it's not two countries but 10 countries or 10 Regional or fifty, if you want, or but, fifty, but, but, yes. But, uh, uh, but then, like Northern California is going to split off from Southern California, and then we've got all kinds of issues. Um, fifty uh, one. Um, bear I, in mind, sorry, while you're yes, I'm, I'm, well, here's why I'm, 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 yeah, here's why I'm finish your thought. Is, is how do you know? Like, could I envision a situation in which that makes sense? Yeah, I think I think that could make sense in which people then can. As long as you have sort of freedom of movement, and you can envision the difficulties embedded with it within that, um, and, and how do you deal with, you know, there, there's the issues with, with how do you deal, as you point out, with the, the global political situation and what effects this is going to have on our relationship with Russia and China and everything else, and trade more broadly. Um, I mean, the question then is, how do you? get to that stage um, from where we are you know I can I can envision what that looks like on the other side of the ocean it's how you cross the ocean to get there that I'm still I'm wrestling with 
Well, I would encourage you to think creatively in the sense that uh, we live in a country that recently left a large union, which seemed unthink relatively unthinkable. Mm. hasn't gone all that smoothly, but it no. is possible. We live in a another place that may well leave the United Kingdom. Mm. I mean, that's definitely a that's a definite possibility in in the near future that that could happen. Uh, so, nothing lasts forever. The borders of the United States mm. haven't been fixed. Uh, have rarely been fixed. I mean, the current borders were only 60 years old. Um, so I, I think we could think creatively. I think in terms of, again, think, looking back to the Articles of Confederation, which were flawed in some ways, but actually you could have a national government that's responsible for national defense. And again, given the role that the United States plays in undergirding global security, it, you'd have to, we can't just, the United States can't just split apart like right. the Soviet Union in 1991, because it, it, it would that would be uh, deeply problematic globally. Uh, it would cause to put it mildly. Yeah. Yes, uh, but where you the federal government, maybe the states take more responsibility. They really do take responsibility for issues within their borders, and the federal government is there to conduct foreign policy adjudicate disputes between the states, hmm. but has limited authority, or much more limited authority. I think you'd have to have free movement between and among the different states, hmm. because you would face a problem. We, uh, we face the problem that, you know, there are, we live in a part of Britain that voted against Brexit, but has been taken out of the European Union and, and has lost those rights and privileges that uh, pertain to being members of the European Union. Hmm. And there's a great deal of unhappiness about that in Scotland, for example. Uh, we want to avoid that sort of circumstance. So if you're, if you're a Texan who actually likes the way things are done in New York or, or mm. California, you still need to be able to go to New York and California. But, but I think actually what you, articula what you are articulating, though, in some ways is the Republican vision for the future of America. They want a Texas where they can make abortion illegal, where they can, you know, give everybody a handgun and in which, you know, they can, Texas can impose whatever version of, of, of life upon its residents as, as it wants to. Um, that sort of denudering the federal government is part of the Republican vision of, of the future. You know, and open borders, as you point out, could be good, but you know, you're, you're for, in a practical reality, the capacity of people to, to pick up and move to another part of the country that's a lot easier to say than to do. Sure. No, I, um, I accept that. You know, whereas, you know, people can say, oh, look, if you don't want to get an abortion in Texas, you can go to the next state over. Well, that could be, you know, a thousand miles, depending on where you are in Texas. Well, especially if Texas is part of some sort of confederacy. Sorry, that's the wrong word. <laughs> Confederation or, or association of, of relevant. That was not deliberate. <laughs> um, it wasn't a confederacy. <laughs> but but, but let, me, let me suggest to you, though. Part, some of the more, what to us seem to be egregious laws being adopted in Texas, for example, mm. in part of being adopted because of the national political, the sense of national political crisis and everything being a front in the culture war. Mm. Whereas if we, again, we lower the temperature, if we, have a, if we had a different constitutional arrangement, a new constitutional settlement, maybe politics in Texas just goes to being about and in New York, goes to just being about, okay, what's good for the people here and what do we want to do? You know, maybe it no longer becomes part of a national fight about everything. Because mm. having a national fight about everything is not working. And what happens when Texas and New York go to war against each other? Well, they won't. That's well, never happened before, that's David. Never... <laughs> Let me because... fill you in on this little thing that happened. Lasted about four years. I can... No, 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 they won't because, again, I'm not talking about ending the United States as a, as a kind of, as a nation. Mm. Uh, I'm talking about re revisiting how we govern the United States, how the, those states are governed. You know, the old Will Rogers line is, you know, what, the Civil War is about whether the United States is or are, right? Maybe we ought to go back to are. The United States are. Um, and, and, and so they won't go to war because the United States government will still have the preponderance of force. Um, so, so I, I, I don't think, and what would they go to war over? Uh, you can imagine them going to war over any They're number. awfully far apart. <laughs> okay, fine. I'll pick two bordering states that could, you can imagine, um, 
you know, Pennsylvania and, and Virginia going to war um, over something like gun rights, over something like uh, abortion rights, where, where one state could say, look, none of our citizens can leave to go and have an abortion. Well, again, that's what the federal government's for. Okay. That's, the but federal then, government then, is there but, to but then, adjudicate disputes. And clearly that they're not doing a great well, job of that. Well, they're not doing it now, but I, I, I'm suggesting, I mean, one of the problems... And you is think a weaker have... government will do a better job of adjudicating disputes than, than what we've got now? Okay, this is a thought experiment, and that's a very good point. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, I, I, but I think some of what you are articulating is what, uh, a vision about what um, a certain element of, within the Republican Party wants, is they want to, you know... Uh, kill off as much of the federal government as they can, whether that's the Department of Education, whether that's, you know, the Department of Transportation, whether that's, you know, any kind of, of civil rights legislation on a national level and say, look, let, let states decide about voting rights, let states decide about abortion rights, let states decide about gay marriage, let you know, states decide about, about everything, and uh, the federal government can sit back and, and make sure the subs are working uh, and the planes are working but otherwise stay out of it. Okay, all right. That's a fair point. Um, and that's not about, a vision of, yeah. Okay, what about a confederacy of confederacies then, in the sense that you have we have regional groupings that exercise a lot of these powers? And so so I, I, this, that's a more, because you're right, uh, I'm not sure what I proposed in the first instance would work. So, so what about <laughs> okay. something? I mean, I get, this is a thought experiment. It's a question I, about, I, yeah, it's about I, how you got there. Yeah. What about saying, you know, the, the country is just, it's 330 million people. It's very, very diverse. It, it's diverse in all kinds of ways, mm. um, geographically, ethnically, economically, and having some sort of groupings of states or regions that have common interests and want to band together um, and let them govern themselves. So maybe we end up with the Commonwealth of Independent States to look at the end of the Soviet Union, there was a... Yeah, that didn't work so well. I, I understand that, but we just, because what we have is not working so well. Oh, to be sure. Um, well, figuring out how, how countries and empires break apart, you know, it, it's always trickier than people say it's Yeah, of be. course it is. Um, and I can Divorce think... is... Yeah, they end up... You end up... Yes, this is going to be an amicable divorce, and then you're fighting over a coffee cup. Not that I've been divorced, but I, yes. I, I've heard. I, I've heard tell. I'm, I'm familiar with the, these, these kinds of things. Um, you know, I th I think the, the better route at this point is to figure out how, as a country, we can learn to live together and make, the, make this marriage work rather than figure out how to split it up. Because I think in, in the process of splitting... No, no, to be sure, there are some, if we can extend this metaphor, there are some marriages that should end because they're bad marriages. But if you assume that the marriage is good, I think there's some, some merit to being saying that for figuring out some ways to resolve the differences that exist on the assumption that things will get better uh, rather than trying to partition uh, the country in, into pieces. Because what might end up happening, and this is one of the things that people worried about uh, in the 1850s and 1860s is, you know, when the Confederacy established itself after Abraham Lincoln was elected, they said, really, is this the end of democracy as we know it? Does this mean that every time somebody doesn't get the results they want in the election, that they're going to break off and say, we're going to take our ball and go home? And then you'll have, you know, the Republic of West Milford, and, and, and then that will split up into two partitions where they say, actually, no, this is our half a town, that's your half a town, and we are, you know, everyone then becomes a, a law unto themselves. And that's a recipe for anarchy, not civilization. Yep. No, no, I mean, as I say, I'm playing devil's advocate okay, here. Yeah, it's a no, experiment, but I, I do think, okay, we need a new constitutional settlement of some kind. I, I don't think we're going to get yeah, one. Yeah, the question, yeah, I think that's another place where, where, where the, the I agree with you, the Constitution is... Uh, I mean, the metaphor I've used before is sort of like a a, a Model T Ford that that's had seatbelts added to it and and, and airbags. It's, <laughs> it's you know it's old. It's one it's classic, but like it barely works, and sometimes it doesn't work and it doesn't work as well as, as it's not the way anyone would design a car today. Um, 
but how we then get buy a new model car uh, and trade in the, the, the classic is is, uh, is, a, is a different question entirely, and, and that's gonna be that would be very hard to do, given the divisions we've talked about today. People see the world in such radically different ways, want different things from government. Um, you know, having a new constitutional convention today would be, um, I think, it's an idea that terrifies lots of people, um, even if it might be a good idea. The biggest argument against mm. what I was, oh, again, not proposing so much as raising, uh, it seems to me, is, of course, there are tens of millions of people who live in the various... These states don't break down easily. There are tens of millions of people in the, the examples I was giving of New York, California, and Texas who don't necessarily agree with the majority views in those particular places and how you... The, the, the chief difficulty... Or one of the chief difficulties the framers of the current constitution sought to deal with was how do you protect the rights of minorities, minority views, mm. in a majoritarian system. And that's not easy to do. And to yeah. some extent, all of our problems are trying to work that out. And the question I raised doesn't address yeah. that problem. And, and you know, the states as administrative units are, are arbitrary. They're crafted based on the particularities of the moment in which those states are created. Um, and the world's changed a lot since the late 18th, 19th century. So, you know, I think maybe new boundaries and new states. Who knows? We New, need England, new England would make a great country, that's all I can say. We're better than you. You see, that's going to start the next <laughs> and that's civil, start war the next civil war. Everybody versus New England. It's already that way. They hate us. <laughs> right. On that note... Uh, time for last drops. What you got for me? A couple of things. Uh, first of all, I, I want to. We need to acknowledge a couple of our colleagues. So our, co our colleague and friend Fabian Hilfrich has just demitted office after three years as the head of the history department here in Edinburgh. That is a very hard job, and he did an excellent job. Yes, and he did it under very, very difficult circumstances. So we ought to acknowledge and thank Fabian for his efforts, and also acknowledge and thank our colleague and friend Di Payton, who's entering and has taken on the role as head of history. Under very difficult circumstances, yes. the pandemic best of luck, not, yeah, is... well, Best of luck, and thank you for taking that on. So, so I wanted to acknowledge that. I also we want to acknowledge our um, friend of the pod, uh, Jason Herbert, who's now Doctor Jason Herbert. Yes. He'll be known to many people, many Twitter historians, uh, as the man who started historians at the movies. Um, and and uh, he's somebody who's appeared in our workshop. And Jason recently defended his PhD dissertation on on. Cattle and Agriculture in Florida in the 19th century um, is fascinating work. Certainly the, the chapter he shared with us is very good. So congratulations, Jason. And you attended his yes. defense. So, so, so they, well, they had, they had the thing on Zoom. And uh, I guess they were doing part of it as a public defense. And they had 81 people there, which is a lot more than I had in my dissertation defense. I had like five. Um, I had five, and I don't think anybody in the room, including me, wanted to be there. <laughs> um, <laughs> But yeah, he had so they had the, the public bit for half an hour, and then then, then they went and did the, the, the I guess the more uh, private part of the, the the defense. But it was it was an interesting way of thinking about about how doctoral studies end to have it the public uh, part of it. And so, what was the public bit? Did they always do a public bit at the University I, I, of no, Minnesota. I, I, don't, know. Don't, know. I don't know. I don't know. But but they, he he gave the I guess what is the customary sort of tell us what your dissertation is about kind of talk, and the, then there were questions from the audience, right? Which is both cool and weird because I think it makes it you know the, the, I had it in a weird sort of small room where I had my dissertation defense and it was in a, you know, kind of, I was in a cave or some kind of trial or something, but uh, this was, was out in the open. Well, in certain international, in other countries, they do it that way where it's a mm. public defense. I mean, in parts of Scandinavia, it's, it's a public defense and you get a sword. You get a sword? <laughs> to defend yourself. I still want my sword. Yeah. I didn't get a sword. <laughs> but anyway, what's your last drop, David? Uh, well, I, I want to endorse a, a new podcast that actually hasn't come out yet. The first episode hasn't come out yet, but I'm I'm excited about the the plans I've seen for it. It's by, it's called uh, Drafting the Past. It's uh, produced by by a person named Kate Carpenter, who's a PhD student at Princeton. But it's about historical writing, uh, and she's going to be interviewing historians about their writing process, about their you know how they do the research, how they actually you know the the craft of of history, and I think that's. I'm always interested to hear how other historians uh, do their work. I think we all sort of sort of hide in our own little caves when we do research, and and I'm always curious to think of, hear other people's 
writing process and their methods and their little tricks and tips and Excellent. Um, it, it, it should be said, listeners, that David has completed a book that's imminent. We'll have to do an episode on yes. this, and it, it's today is not the day. Today is not the day, uh, but, but uh, you're a very good writer yourself, and well, so congratulations I'm, on that. You. So uh, hopefully um, we and indeed I've finished my manuscript. As oh, well, so, so we we, we, we can all talk about, about writing there. Okay, what what you got for? No, questions. that's it. That's it. I'm done. Okay, great. Okay. Uh, until next week. Cheers. cheers. The Whiskey Rebellion is hosted by David Silkenet and Frank Cogliano. David is a senior lecturer in American history at the University of Edinburgh, and Frank is professor of American history and dean international for North America at the University of Edinburgh. The Whiskey Rebellion is available on iTunes, Stitcher, and Podbean. You can follow the show on Twitter at WhiskeyRebelPod and like the show on Facebook for updates about current and future episodes.